Thanks, Terry. Uh, great to have that part of the Bible open. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. We're going to pray for us as we consider Genesis 3 and the second picture in our series on the fall. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thanks that it's living and active, that it shows us things that we can't know because you, the God who speaks, reveal them to us. So, Father, help our hearts to be open to receive your word this morning and use your Holy Spirit to teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, we did Genesis chapter 3, and we didn't do Genesis chapter 2, and so I just want to set the scene. Last week we did Genesis 1, the creation account. There's sort of another account of creation in chapter 2, and so I just want to set the scene a little um, in chapter 2 for us before we get into chapter 3. So there is a workman formed, a workman, uh, one who's got... uh, the ground as his origin. He comes from the ground and God breathes into him the breath of life. He's given work to do, and this is, uh, helpfully expands the idea of fill and subdue. It says in verse 15, the Lord God put the man, uh, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, there is in, implicit and explicit in that a desire from God that we would care for the environment around us and use it to ends that will be not for its destruction, but for its good. Uh, we then see that there's a warning. Uh, in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Then we see that uh, God brings all the wild things, all the animals of the earth before Adam, and he is to name them. And so this is an act of his mastery. This is part of him ruling over the created world in that he gets to name them. We then see wonderfully none of those animals are helpers for him, and so God puts something extraordinary in the garden for him. Uh, none of those are suitable, so a rib is taken from his side and someone is, uh, is created from it. She is called woman, for she was taken out of man. It's a beautiful, wonderful gift of God, and it is an incredible compliment and a help to him for the role that God's entrusted to him. And then we have these amazing verses in verse 24, which really is kind of like the wedding. Uh, uh, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is a, uh, a profoundly beautiful picture. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the ultimate expression of what we long for. Intimacy, fellowship without fear. This is what we long for, and here it is in the garden at the very beginning. Man and woman relating without barriers and without hindrance. They're naked and they felt no shame. I just want you to note here, it's, it's not, there's no time mentioned in the text, and so we actually don't know how long this verse 25 state lasted. Because of the way that we read, we go from chapter three, uh, sorry, chapter two straight into chapter three, and we immediately think the very next day after Adam and Eve were created in the garden, chapter three happens. And all I want to observe to you is there's no necessity to think that it's the very next thing that happens. 
That's actually quite important for us because it's entirely possible that they lived in a state of blessing in the garden for an extended period. There's no necessity to go bang, bang. Okay? And that actually speaks to the goodness of God's creation. He didn't set it up and then it immediately fell over and was a complete disaster. That, that's not how the text has to be read. And so what I want you to see is we don't know how long this lasted, but it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And then all of a sudden, something happens. However long after, and I don't know the answer to that, but however long after, something happens. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And so we have this crafty creature, and it turns up in the story. And so we wonder, who is the serpent? I mean, we still have serpents today. Who was this serpent? And it's only as we, we go further out in the Bible that we can actually know for sure exactly who the serpent is. And so we're told in John 8.44, when uh, Jesus is speaking uh, to the Pharisees, he said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. So whoever was at the beginning, the origin is a misleading murderer. And you might wonder about how murder comes in, and I'll explain that a little bit later. The serpent is a crafty creature. We're told that the devil is a murderer from the beginning. And we get the uh, connection all the way in Revelation, the last book in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says this, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. See, there's a connection made between the serpent and Satan or the devil. And Satan means accuser. And so who is the devil? He's the ancient accuser of God's people. And he is connected all the way through these texts back to the serpent who is in the garden at this point. So in the midst of our perfection and right relationship, a crafty creature enters. He simply turns up and everybody wants to know what? Where does he come from? How did he get there? What happened prior to this? And do you know how much information God wants to tell us about that? It's all contained in Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had created. Has that satisfied you completely? No. We have all sorts of questions, don't we? And I want you to just observe, okay, God isn't interested in accounting for the origin of Satan here, the serpent. It's just not on God's agenda. He wants to show us what happens after Satan turns up. He doesn't give us an extended account of his origin. So what I want to do is do an anatomy lesson on the first sin. Okay? I want to do an anatomy lesson on the first sin. And I want you to see how the attack starts. Chapter 3, verse 1, he said to the woman, incidentally, again, it's totally unremarkable, apparently, that there's a talking snake in the garden. Just so we're clear. Okay? There isn't a pause moment where Eve goes, hold the phone, Adam, I'm talking to a reptile. No. Now, guys, I, it just, it, again, it is, it is a remarkable part. Not if you're a Narnia person. Do we have any Narnia people here? 
Okay, we're expecting some animals to talk, aren't we? No problems. But that's not the situation here. It's a garden, and all of a sudden we have a talking snake. That's just part of the account. And the snake says, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What's the answer to that, everyone? Oh, don't think too long. Um, Hopefully you're paying attention when Terry read the Bible. Uh, Did God really say you you can't eat, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God say that? Okay, good. The answer is no. Okay, and if Eve says no, do you know what? You and I are living in a much better universe. The answer is no, isn't it? Yes, that's right. (laughs) Yes, the answer is no. Okay, good. We're having a good moment here, church. But okay, here's the thing. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No. Done. Okay, we're all finished. There is no extra thing that happens from that. And then the the talking snake disappeared and no one ever heard from it again. It's remarkable, isn't it? That's not what happened. She doesn't say the simple answer, no. I want you to see that sin narrows our vision. Sin narrows our vision. God had said to Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for this one. And what Satan says is, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And she says, "Uh, well, we did say that we couldn't eat from that one. And so what's happened is, instead of looking at the abundance of God's provision, we're now focused on his prohibition. Do you see this? That's incredibly sneaky. It's incredibly sneaky. And so sin sows doubt. Did God really say? Did God really say? Did you hear God correctly? Now, interestingly enough, in Eve's case, she didn't hear God correctly because he spoke only to Adam in chapter 2 when he spoke. But sin sows doubt. Did you get it right? Do you understand God correctly? And then sin speaks with Satan. What it does is it engages with a dialogue with him. Well, look, Satan, actually, what I'd like to do is I'd like to set you right on your lie. Can I tell you a story? And we're already in the trap because now we're conversing with the devil. And then she says, well, actually, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, verse 2, but verse 3, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Satan's next response is far more bold than before. He says, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The line is essentially, God is a liar. You will not certainly die. Do you know that this thought, the thought that God's good word was no longer good, had never crossed their minds before. It had never entered their thoughts that God could be holding out from them. And so here, Satan goes from, did God really say, to an outright lie. You won't certainly die. And look, I wonder, I wonder where the emphasis is. Because it could be, it's more like a 50-50 bet, right? You will not certainly die. I'm not quite sure what will happen. But it's not certain, okay? It's kind of it's in the balance. You won't certainly die. Whatever he is, what he's trying to do is undermine the authority of God. And so what he says is, uh, you will not certainly die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat from it, verse 5, 
your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what, what he tells them is you will know something you don't know before. The reason that God is holding out from you is because he's no longer good. He's afraid of you. You can become like him, knowing good and evil. And so what he says is one day you could be like God. And it is a vague promise of the future because what would they do? What would be different if you have everything you need? What are you really hoping to grasp? So it's a vague promise of the future. This is sin all the time. A vague promise of a future that will be great. Don't really know what it is. And you trade away present blessings that are real. Trade away present blessings that are real for future vague promises. That's a bad equation. That's a bad equation. See, it says that you will be like God. And so she looks at the fruit, and the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. You see, she looked at it. She, she went from, I know that I'm not supposed to do that. That's the illegal tree, right? All the other trees are mine. But now she's looking at the illegal tree. And when she looks, she says, it is good for food. It looks great. It's attractive to the eye. I like the shape of that. That, that is really attractive. I like the sheen on that. It's pretty attractive. And, and then it's desirable for wisdom. I want what it's promised to hold for me. Now, here's how sin gets us. It says that you make decisions based on your appetite, based on aesthetics, and based on your own advantage. Make decisions with your appetite. Don't involve your head or your heart. Go with your stomach or your loins. Make decisions based on your appetite. Get beyond what you've been told about this thing and look only at the shiny surface. Look, a bright, shiny thing. I want that. Look only at the aesthetics. Or maybe it's you put all of those things aside and you go, I want more for me. It's not fair. I want it. We go for our own advantage. Now, here's some questions for us to think about when it comes to sin. Do you believe that God is holding back your happiness? So that's essentially what happened. They're in the garden. They have a perfect relationship with one another, with the created order, with work, with their creator. And the, the, the lie that gets them is God is holding back your happiness. You can have more happiness. Is God holding back your happiness? Do you have anything still to be thankful for? And the way that you'll know that you're falling under the, the pressure of sin is when you lose the ability to look at the abundance that God's given you and you focus down and you have no things to be thankful for. Do you ponder your temptation? In other words, do you talk with the devil about what could be? Do you turn it over and over and wonder, could this work? I want to think with you about sin and temptation, and I want to ask, are you really following God? Now, this, this is a, a wider discussion probably than, than this one here, but, but I think a really good way to check out if who you're worshipping is God and not your own appetites is, has your God ever told you no? Guys, I, I, I really want you to get this question. 
Has your God ever told you no? Because the God that you invent never says no. There's always a justification, isn't there? You can do whatever you want. You'll know that you're worshipping a God who isn't your conscience, your desires, your appetites, when he says no to you. And are you doubting his word? Because it starts there. Did God really say? Can anyone really understand this? Is this truly? How do I know for sure? Inevitably, this doubt starts in a desire or an appetite. Well, what was the mistake? How did we get to a sin? What was the mistake? Mistake number one, it seems, is that Eve actually goes beyond what God says. If you have a look at 2.17, uh, it says, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good or evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. But when we see Eve, Eve says, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, this is just an extraordinary thing, right? It's really interesting to note, you must not touch it. And so I wonder if there's an ungodly pause. The serpent says to Eve, Eve... You won't certainly die, right? She goes, well, I've been told I can't touch it or I'll die, and I can't eat it or I'll die. And so I wonder if there's a pause. You see, you have to touch it before you eat it, don't you? You don't probably just, it's not like bobbing for apples or something. That's not what we typically do. And so here's the thing. I wonder, I wonder if she touches it, think I'm okay, and then she eats. Do you see? Because she added to the word of God, because this do not touch it or you will die is not what God says. She gets boldness from her mistake. Do do you see? And so she has an ungodly pause and then a rebellious bite, but the rebellious bite is made possible by the pause after the touching where she wasn't immediately struck by lightning. Do, Do you see? And so I wonder if Adam's added warning, and I think this is what it is. Eve didn't hear it. So I think Adam said, "Uh, look, we're not supposed to eat from that tree, but you'll do really well not to touch it. Actually, God said, don't touch it. I'm going to keep you safe. Now, he added to what God said, and I think, I'm just speculating here, but I think it actually led to Eve's fall because it gave her confidence. It gave her confidence after she touched it to eat because she didn't die immediately. And so Eve doubts the goodness of God and she sins. And then I think Adam then follows on from this. Adam's, Adam's, Adam's told, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And I want you to see that Adam is right there with her. Uh, verse, verse 6, uh, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I want you to see Adam is right there. Way to go, Adam. Right? This is just an epic failure on behalf of the first man. You failed dismally. You let the snake talk to Eve. You let Eve talk to the snake and you did nothing. Adam's right there. And I think he thinks Eve hasn't died. Eve thinks, I touched it and I didn't die. I'm going to eat it. And Adam's standing next to her and he goes, Touched it, didn't die, ate it. Hasn't died. Do do you see? And so she, I think, uh, is kind of the test for him. 
And so he has a rebellious bite. And so Adam analyzes the situation. He looks at it and goes, touched, ate, didn't die. I'm all in. This looks like a really good option. And so Adam fails to care for his wife. He fails to hold up to his own obedience and he falls. So what do we learn about sin here? What do we learn about sin here? God's consequences aren't instantaneous. It's possible to sin and not die straight away. Who knew? All of us, right? So but because of that, we have a mistaken boldness in the gap. You will die for your sin. That's going to happen to all of us. But there's a mistaken boldness that comes. I haven't died yet, so I can keep sinning. It's not going to be a problem. Thirdly, we see a collective confidence. Adam actually draws confidence from the fact that Eve seems to be getting away with it. And so if you hang out with a group of people who appear to be getting away with sin, you'll be bold in the gap too. (laughs) What does sin provide? Mere seconds of satisfaction. There's a beautiful little quote I found this week. It says, they eat and expect marvellous results. They wait and there grows on them a sense of Shame. A sense of shame. See, the devil has a no exchanges, no refunds policy. He goes, congratulations, you took from the, uh, the fruit. And they go, oh, that was bad. He says, no, no exchanges, no refunds. Uh, so what did the devil sell them? He sold them three things that they didn't anticipate that they were getting. They were sold, you'll be like God. Here's what they got. What they got was shame. They are no longer innocent. What they got was fear. God now seems dangerous. What they got was hiding. They now have to avoid fellowship with God. A complete tragedy, a different bill of goods came in under the name of you will be like God. It's the very opposite of naked and unashamed. So if we look at an idealistic picture of of the fall, what do we see? After this has happened, God says, where are you? It says that he was walking, with, walking in the cool of the garden. It's such a beautiful picture of what we assume was ongoing fellowship. And God says, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Adam says, I'm, I'm hiding. Well, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Have you done that? And he says, He says, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I just want you to see the line of responsibility. Adam, what have you done? Well, he says, the woman that you put here, she gave me some and I ate it. But but who is the woman? The woman you put here with me. Whose problem is this? Well, it's Eve's problem and it's God's problem. God, you're the one who is responsible for my failure. And then God says, well, what is this that you've done, Eve? And Eve says, well, I'm going to take full responsibility. Clearly, I spoke to a speaking animal in the garden and I disobeyed the direct command of the living God. I abandoned my hope in the provision of God. Not what she says. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the implication is, God, you put the serpent in the garden. It's your fault and it's the serpent's fault. Now, guys, this is classic sin response behavior, isn't it? I was talking to uh, someone who's a discipline officer at their school, uh, at our life group on, um, on Tuesday night. And he said, I've never had a student walk in and say, I take full responsibility. 
This is you and I with sin all the time, isn't it? But God, but you, but they, but we. Sin has consequences every time. Every time it has consequences. The consequences for the serpent are is that the serpent will be cursed. He will crawl on his belly and there will be conflict between his offspring and the offspring of the woman. But there is even more, something even more, something extraordinary is in Genesis 3 verse 15. I want you to look at it with me. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What is going on here? Descendants from the serpent and descendants from Eve will be in battle until one day when a head-stomping moment happens to the serpent. What will happen? Well, there's a little foretaste here of the gospel in Genesis. It's extraordinary, right? And what we see here is that from little things, big things grow. From one of the descendants, from one of the descendants of Eve will come a man who will utterly crush Satan. But it'll be a strange victory because his heel will be bitten. Where do we see victory looking like defeat? Only on the cross. Only on the cross. This is the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Extraordinary. But there are consequences for Eve too. I want you to see though, she is not cursed. Everyone just focus in for me for one second, okay? Satan is cursed. The woman is not cursed. Is everyone with me? She is not cursed. However, she will receive pain in childbirth and She will have pain in her relationship with her husband. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. It'll be terrible. Your marriage, he says, your marriage and your family will be marred. Your marriage and your family will be marred. It will be hard for you to be a woman. What does he say to Adam? I want you to see Adam is not cursed. He too is not cursed. However, the ground is cursed because of him and he will take sweaty sustenance from the ground. It'll, it'll be hard yakka getting food out of the ground from now. And he will have a dusty destiny. From dust you have come, and to dust you will return. Because you sinned, you will die. Dust is your destiny. You will no longer live forever. And so toiling and tilling will be made hard for Adam. We're then told that they're about to get thrown out of the garden, but there is one beautiful bit of grace. What does God do? Have a look with me at chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. How extraordinary is this, right? God clothes them. Their biggest need is their nakedness, their fear, and their shame, and God provides them with covering. He covers over their sin and their shame. He also says that there is no way back to the garden. He kicks them out and then bars the way so that they don't live forever. They're not allowed to eat from the tree of life. And I want you to know that the only way you can cover them in animal skin is by animal sacrifice. An animal must die. Now, isn't this a beautiful little seed for what's about to happen in the rest of the Old Testament? For God to cover over sin, someone must die. The animal 
sacrifice. And then we see that eternity is ended. There is no way back to the tree of life. Well, that's Genesis chapter 3. How on earth do we get to Mother's Day from that? Good gracious. Let me just show you two mothers in the Bible. There's one called Eve. Have you heard of her? She's told in chapter 3, verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Eve will be the mother of all. We're then told in Matthew chapter 1 that there is one coming whose son will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Mary is the mother of the one, the one who was to come, the serpent-crushing offspring of Eve. Mothers, right here in the story of Genesis chapter 3. And I love this, just one of my favorite little uh, verses here. Jesus is wandering along. And um, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave birth and nursed you. Isn't this a wonderful Mother's Day verse right here? Oh, Jesus, your mum's so blessed to have had you. She must be so happy to have had you. Your mum's awesome, right? Great, great. Good, good Mother's Day verse. We're in the vibe. Okay, I want you to see what Jesus says instead. And we know that he loved his mum. We know that he loved his mum. Here's what he says in response, and it's good for us. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Yeah, my mum's awesome. But you want to be really blessed? Blessing is found through obedience. Blessing is found through obedience. Hear the word of God and obey it. Our first sin was to hear the word of God and disobey it. If you want to find blessing, blessing is found in hearing the word of God and obeying it. What do we do? We need to recognize the way that sin has and still does impact everything. That first deception, that first fall impacts everything today. We need to worship the serpent-crushing king who helps us stand each day against sin. And we need to live in hope of the new creation to come. You see, the big picture of the Bible doesn't just talk about sin and says, what a terrible, sorry story. What it does is it takes us from creation all the way through to new creation in the end. And I want to leave you with these verses this morning. This is the end of the Bible and what it says, Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves are for the healing of the nations." Brothers and sisters, one day we'll return to a place where we can eat from the tree of life forever, where there'll be no more sin or sickness or sorrow or Satan. That's the trajectory of our hope, and it's the reason that Genesis 3 is not the end for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this account of our first sin. Father, we feel it. We know it. We experience the same things Help us to be those who trust and obey rather than doubt and turn away. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.